0: This is the Permaculture Podcast, I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to episode 1644, The Independent Farmstead. As we begin, I'd like to thank author, educator, and guest of the podcast, Brad Lancaster, for his many years of support and continuing contributions to the permaculture community. His incredible series, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, offers clear and simple methods for assessing how to harvest and utilize on-site assets like water, sun, wind, and shade to create yields in our systems. In particular, check out the recently updated second edition of Volume 1, and learn how to create regenerative systems in your community with the resources around you. Find out more about Brad and pick up copies of his books at harvestingrainwater.com. You'll find them to be a vital reference that deserves to be on your shelf. My guest today is Beth Doherty part of the wife and husband team that wrote the new book, The Independent Farmstead, from Chelsea Green Publishing. In our conversation today, though their book is a holistic approach to including animals on the farm on an intensive pasture-managed system, most of our conversation, once we begin directly with Beth's background and biography, is about the life of a farmer, what it's like to make this commitment to caring for animals and the land. With decades of experience shared with Sean, the two of them have built a life together while raising a family and farming without the kind of background that you might expect. And if you're a Patreon supporter, I do have a copy of the book that I'll be giving away, so go ahead and leave a comment in the show notes on Patreon for this episode, expressing your interest if you'd like to be entered in for that drawing to win. Let's go ahead and get started with Beth, and I'll join you again afterwards.
1: Sean and I are both natives to the southwest. We're actually both notes. born in Texas. We're both children of men who grew up themselves on poor dry farms, became medical professionals, and then bought land in the country and moved their families back out, where we kept some beef cattle, raised some grass, kept a big garden and can, but really didn't get a whole lot more exposure than what would serve to make us not be afraid of large animals or pressure canners. But we both knew, you know, independently of one another, that the life we wanted to live was going to be in the country and was going to have to do with raising food. And, of course, then when we met, we found we had that in common. But it wasn't as, as easily done as said. When we moved to Ohio, we spent some time searching for land that looked like a farm and finances were tight. We'd always been committed to a single income budget so that we could have time with our children and have time to farm. So when we did finally find something we could afford, it was it hardly looked worth buying. It was actually 16 acres for $11,000, but despite that low price, <laughs> it was so bad we didn't know whether we wanted to buy it or not. But we did buy it thinking that we'd fix it up and sell it buy a real farm. And in the course of the fixing up, you know, digging out from under mountains of trash, stripping the house down to studs and rebuilding it, you know, from the skin outward and inward, and um, getting goats to clear all the briars. You couldn't penetrate the woods. Most of the land is wooded. All of it is steep. We discovered that there's a lot that can be done. And in fact, there are a lot of advantages to neglected and forgotten land with lots of niches that are inaccessible to tractors but maybe great microclimates or micro, micro ecosystems for farming in. And uh, I guess about three years after we moved in, we started asking ourselves if we ever wanted to leave. And since that time, we've overflowed onto neighbor's property until we're managing, oh, in the neighborhood of 130 acres. And we have no intention of going anywhere.
2: When did you purchase your initial sixteen acres?
1: Um, nineteen ninety six Um, we had a brand new no, we were expecting a baby. We had when we moved in, he was brand new. The house didn't have plumbing except for in one bathtub. And we bathed the kids outside in a bucket under a tree for a good long time. but um no was no one was any the worse for wear.
2: And you mentioned coming from families that raised beef. Was that exposure at a young age for both you and Sean the reason why you have raised ruminants on your farm?
1: Maybe, although both of our grandfathers were dry farmers, meaning they had little farms that had no irrigation and they had to grow what would grow. And they both kept milk cows, but that was sort of beyond our memory except for you know, when we were very young, going to the granddad and and having milk. Somehow or other passed on to our generation was the understanding that one couldn't farm anymore. And although our parents probably understood that what they meant was, well, it's not really economically viable, what we heard sounded more or less like cows didn't give milk anymore. And certainly that it was much harder, much more complicated, much more demanding than anybody in the 20th century could possibly want to extend himself to. But, you know, we had it in our heads that that was a big part of what a real farm was made out of, was a milk cow. We grew up on home-raised beef, so cows were definitely part of the picture. But it was the dairy animal, and specifically for us, the dairy cow, that was, I think it was the point where we looked at one another and said, I think we're farmers, you know. I think we're farmers now.
2: And that's where that idea of the one cow revolution comes in that opens your book?
1: Oh, yeah. Because you know, from from the outset we kept dairy animals, we kept dairy goats for clearing and we milked them and we made cheese and we drank the milk. We weren't ever super fond of goats' milk. I don't want to make enemies of all the wonderful goat people out there. But if you're if you're using your goats for brush clearing then there's going to be a certain amount of goatiness in that milk, regardless of how quick you know how clean your equipment is and how fast you cool it. But you know, it was it was good, and we the kids grew up drinking it, and that was our source of milk for seven or eight years. But it was when we first started milking a Jersey that we realized that this was like you know it was like striking oil. This was this enormous constant source of high quality fats and proteins that suddenly began to lift off of us the burden of purchase feed for the animals suddenly um, for the other animals not just the, not just the bovines suddenly there was a bull calf out there and he was raised just on mama's milk suddenly the chickens instead of being dependent on completely on purchased grains and whatever you know the garden was producing Their high-quality protein need was being met by half a gallon of milk a day. The pigs were getting all the buttermilk and whey and you know various dairy excesses, and all of a sudden, with pigs, often the issue with home-raised food is the protein, the the enzyme lysine, and all of a sudden there it is in the milk. It's we no longer have a problem balancing their protein intake. And we realized, okay, so the real resource for this farm, for, for really any, I'm going to use the term real farm, is the grass on that farm usually because it's the biggest solar collector and it experiences the most constant turnover because it grows and is grazed, grows and is grazed. You know, so in every month or six weeks, perhaps, any given area has produced a whole new crop of grass for the whole growing season. And we realized, okay, now we're solar-powered. Before that, there were just too many purchased inputs necessary. The cow, yes, could be grazed. Any of our ruminants could be just grazed. But now, with a large milk-producing animal, everybody was getting fed. When I say that, you know, three, four, five gallons of milk come into the house every day for more than half the year and then, you know, all but two months of the year... We might go down to two gallons, not less. That's an open pipeline of nutrition. And that really was the turning point for us, for the farm.
2: Just by adding one animal to the farm, you had that much of a change in your ability to utilize that grass and turn it into something that was useful across the farm as a whole.
1: That's it, precisely. When you start to reflect on, say, your daily drive anywhere, if you have one, or your neighborhood, or even, say, the environs of the nearest big city, on all the pockets of land that are presently overgrown at this time of year, they're just covered with gone-to-seed goldenrod and and briars and so forth. And you realize, okay, every one of those pieces of soil, or virtually every one of them, has the potential to come under, I won't say cultivation, but under management and produce food for everybody around it, simply by the application of, of grazing or browsing ruminants, it's really um, transformative to realize that the earth has that potential to feed the people on it. And the only requirement is that somebody tend them, that somebody be willing to go out and take care of them. Not certainly not all day, but just for moments of the day where you get a chance to look at them, make sure they have water, move their fence. It makes you wonder if there's any excuse for hunger on the planet. Certainly in the United States where we have so much arable land with decent weather.
2: And it sounds like you found a system that is not, well, it's intensive by traditional understandings, but it's not work-intensive in order to do this. As you say, it's checking on water, moving animals through pasture, and then working in the other spaces on the farm.
1: That's right. The actual work that goes into the management of, say, one or a few grazing ruminants for a household, the actual work that goes into that on a daily basis is actually, you know, it can be compassed in a very little time, most of the time. What it can't be is scheduled in as, you know, this exact 15 minutes every day and nothing more year-round. And it can't really be an afterthought. Nobody should attempt to homestead with their spare scraps of time and spare scraps of interest and attention. It won't let you. Homesteading, farming won't let you do that. And um, you're going to be frustrated if you try. Because more than just the labor, you're bringing your attention, you're bringing your thought You're bringing your um, your living into the space. You're farming. So, just as an example, um, I can keep a grazing cow on, say, five acres of grass. She can probably, if it's good grass and and I've been using it for a while, I might be able to keep her grazed on that in this climate for mm, ten months a year, maybe more in a good year. Um, And I can. I can do the actual daily stuff with her in 45 minutes. I'll throw in 15 for walking down the hill and for coming back up and washing buckets out after I've strained the milk for twice a day. Okay, you don't have to double it, but anyway, a bit more time. It takes 5, 10 minutes to move fence most of the time. But there are other times when I'm, say, hauling hay from another part of the farm to put up in the barn for our few weeks of hay weather, or, oh, dealing with milk, you know. Hey, once you've got all that milk coming in, all of a sudden you need to figure out, how do I skim it, how do I make butter, how do I make cheese? When am I going to, you know, cheese making has a lot of, um, it's like bread making in that There's a little bit of prep time and a lot of being around, waiting on it time. You know, there's figuring out where the fences need to be for this season, the, ma- the main fences, not the movable daily ones, and going out and making sure that they're there. That they're not fouled by, say, a branch down on a weeds grown up through them. There are the farm is only going to give back to you what you give to it of yourself. I think so. Small chores, frequently, but like having children, you have to. You may not have to work with them all the time, but you need to be available to them when they need you.
2: And I wonder if that's why, to a modern perspective, farming. And even homesteading seems so daunting because it's something that we can't schedule in a very routine way that says that I get up at eight o'clock in the morning, I have my coffee, I walk out at eight fifteen I do these half an hour's worth of chores, then I come in and then I'm working on you know what I might think of as my day job, and then I go out and I do a little bit more in the evening that That ongoing attention and focus to the farm and the life that you're caring for requires something that we're just not used to anymore.
1: I think you're right. I mean, but so so many of our chores can be and are scheduled at a certain time, particularly if we're milking a ruminant. But they're not optional. We have options, don't we? We have, ah, uh, you know, maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't. I've noticed that the same woman, who will, or man, who will pay, whatever for her. Zumba lessons once a week could have been teaching that class and getting paid to do it, but she'd have to show up then. Real example. I know people in, in that category. And she'd just prefer to go and, ha- and enjoy her Zumba when she wants to but not be there if something else pulls her away. And I think that we like options and, and farming isn't as optional. I think the other thing that's very intimidating although it's hard to put the reason why exactly into words, is that nobody else is doing it. I mean, there's nothing really that terribly difficult about getting out of bed and milking a cow every morning. Only nobody else we know does it. And so they can say, you know what, the weather's really bad this winter. I'm going to take a week and go down to Florida. And we can't say it. Or... In the summertime, people can say, I'm going to go out to the beach and I'm going to stay until the sun goes down. Well, we can't. Got to be home at five to melt the cows no matter what. And the simple fact that we don't have company in that privation makes it feel like more of a burden, I think. The non-negotiability of farming, I think, it comes between modern people and just doing it. Don't you find that?
2: That makes perfect sense because I know that was a conversation that I had with my former spouse about wanting to get a farm and to work with rescued animals and things like that was about, well, what do you do then if you want to go away for two or three days? Who would we know who could come and cover that time for us to make sure that the animals were fed and things like that? And even just when... We were all working full time and everything else, something as simple as who was going to feed our pets if we're gone for three days and the difference between having a dog that needs to be walked or having cats that you can put out extra food and litter for. And that's just with pets in, in a household without all those responsibilities of the farm, let alone to take on all of these other pieces, as you mentioned. And yet, as you talk about it, though it's non-negotiable, it doesn't seem daunting in the way that sometimes you hear that farming sounds like it could be.
1: I'm not sure why that is, except again, it is like personal relationships in that if you hear, you know, like if somebody described parenthood ahead of time, who would sign up? <laughs> but the payback is so incredible when you, when, you know, not knowing what you're getting yourself into, you suddenly find yourself a parent. The payback, although it would be hard to put into words that would convey in any way the real meaning, the payback's huge, the payback's incalculable, and we find that with farming all the time, only we're getting to the point where we can't even, we no longer can, can um, examine it as from the outside and say, wow, isn't it cool how when you lie down in the pasture now, you're not a visitor seeking a moment with nature, you're a member of a community that includes insects and biota and snakes and and the grass is waving over your head you belong there and it makes you welcome and part of community in a way that someone may have might have said the words to us but they would not have conveyed much meaning they might have sounded sentimental or pie in the sky but those are, are real things that that we realize when they're, they're happening to us, and then at some point you stop realizing, it becomes you know part of the texture and the fabric of how we live. And um, I tell you, when when you realize that it's happened is when you think, "I could never go back." You know, don't you have that feeling about living in the country? There comes a point where you think, just walking through, you know, two feet of snow at six o'clock in the morning may be a drag, but I. When I consider the alternative, you know, go back to town and shovel my walk and drive to work, I'm staying here.
2: You might have those moments considering what you're currently involved in, as you say, walking through that snow, or perhaps, you know, going out with an animal in the middle of the night when they're sick and spending long hours with them, but that that doesn't compare to the overall life and lifestyle that you've built around your time on the farm.
1: That's right. That's right, and there's even a sense why that's happening. Of, okay, this is the price for what I have. I don't know. I think mountain climbers love the burn. You know, they love the the nights on the cold hillside, and the pain in their in their muscles after a really good climb. And I think the same. Uh, I, I, I'm I'm saying this, and even. As we speak, I have to meet a vet, you know, this later on this morning about a cow with a an zimp. And I don't enjoy sick animals. I panic. I um, feel guilty. You know, I, I, I everything everything goes wrong with my children or my animals it seems to be my own personal responsibility. But even while it's causing me a certain amount of anxiety or suffering, that's really part of why the rest of it seems so worthwhile maybe maybe we don't really enjoy anything that doesn't cost us something
2: it leads to some of those thoughts can there really be joy without sadness to have something that balances this and then to provide a sense of that holistic being in this life that we've chosen for ourselves
1: yeah that's that's a marvelous observation because I certainly spent the first you know Two decades of my life, hoping that there was some way to have pleasure without suffering, and um, and I don't rush to meet it. But I think you're right that the, and it's not it's not purely a question of contrast. I think it's maybe we have an internal sense of entering into a thing when we have suffered for it. I know that even in just a matter of sitting down to a meal. I mean, we eat extremely well, and my family eats, I think, what would be normally in a normal household would be considered a lot. Um, We're all fairly fit and trim, but we do eat a lot. And I think that there's something about sitting down to a meal where every component came from from the earth and from your hands and from your animals. And, you know, that squash goes back to a seed that was planted in the spring and that big pitcher of milk on the table, which is probably going to get empty twice if everybody's at the table at once. You know, we moved the fence and grazed the animal and squeezed the cow and brought it up and strained it and put it in the fridge and skimmed it and we made the butter. There's something about um, that process that makes, you know, the simple part, sitting down and eating it, and the pleasurable part, makes that more whole, more completely ours. It also, you know, just on the purely practical level. We can eat that much because we work that hard. We can, we can enjoy these foods as much as we do because they came from the soil we live on and there's something of a, of a synergy or, or something even beyond our ability to measure, I think, that comes from eating the fruits of the soil you live on. Something maybe indefinable but not intangible that happens when you really, really eat locally, that I think is all part of the same thing we're talking about that that study in contrast, pleasure and pain.
2: To get to this point as farmers, did you or Sean have a background in agriculture before purchasing your sixteen acres?
1: Well, aside from the the grandfathers with farms and the dads with beef cattle, and big gardens, I would have to say no. Sean's and my training, we're both trained in the arts in college. Sean was a theater professional and then a theater professor, and I took my degrees in literature and ceramic art, (laughs) so that wasn't our training at all, but our tastes lay in the direction of living in the country, and maybe even more, they did not die in the direction of living in town. Neither of us could acclimate to living in town. We did live in town for six years after we moved to Ohio because, because we were renting and we hadn't found land. But every May, as soon as school got out, as soon as the university closed, we'd jack up the kids and drive back to Oklahoma where his folks farmed and we'd spend the whole summer helping out on that farm, living with his folks. They were wonderful, marvelous summers, and um, that gave us an opportunity to um, extend our experience a little bit. You know, we had grown up catching the cows, and you know, bringing in calves in the summer to brand and tag and give them shots and wean the young animals off their mamas. So we were used to handling the animals. We were used to moving them. But the farming that we're doing now, really we had no background in, and there's a good reason for that aside from not having done it. And that's that most of the time, certainly our experience, when you go to look for a book or when you ask the farmer next door or the large animal veterinarian in your area, how do I do this? You know, How do I keep chickens? Or what do cows need to eat or um, you know what part of the year can you pasture animals you get some form of the conventional as in commercial ag answer so you get you get told how many square feet of chicken house a chicken needs to be healthy how much roost space she needs you know she needs a quarter of a pound of of, of tmr of total mixed ration of Gang mash or something a day, and although we did start out there in that um, when we wanted to k- keep chickens, you know, we were looking at floor plans. How much, how much room do we need per chicken? Even though they were going to free range, we quickly found out that those answers didn't really work. I think we, I think we first knew that they weren't the right answers for the kind of farming we wanted to do, as we were hauling sack after sack after sack of purchased grain from the station wagon out to the barn and thinking, okay, something's wrong here. So when we went looking for other instructions, you know, like what did chickens eat back when our grandfathers were raising chickens and there was no Purina, it was very difficult to find answers to those questions. I mean, there's a certain amount of intuition that you can bring to it. Well, you know, turn a chicken out and you watch what she eats, seeds, leaves, bugs, rocks. But that answer doesn't put very many eggs in the nesting box. And then you start asking yourself, well, she's not performing the way the book says she's supposed to perform. I'm getting you know, fewer eggs than it would lead me to, to expect. Then we think, okay, I'm fading. So there's, there's sort of a two-pronged problem here. The methods that we're mostly going to find instructions for aren't really the methods of farming. They're the methods of um, you know, bringing in inputs and, and converting them with animals. And the results when you really farm are also not exactly the results of the commercial methods. I'll grant you, you, you put a, a dairy cow in your barn and you shove 20 pounds of grain in the front end every day, you're going to get more milk out of the back end than we do. A dairy cow on grass is never or seldom, only at the beginning of prolactation, going to have an utter straining to the point of bursting that's just always in a state of incipient mastitis, the way commercial dairy cows are. And the steer that you put out, you know, you put a Jersey steer out on grass for, say, 16 months and butcher him, he is not going to weigh in like the Hereford up the road with the lady who's been giving him a five-gallon bucket of grain every day and you ask yourself, oh gosh, is he not as healthy? Am I failing? Even when you know it's, the answer is no, that comparison is uncomfortable until, until something happens to give you the conviction to say, no, really, those commercial methods, as much as they define a goal, you know, big output, and then find a very direct way toward that, that system leaks all over the place, it leaks nutrients, it leaks energy, it leaks health and the natural system, although for the one product that the commercial people are trying to produce meat or milk or or whatever their take is going to exceed ours the actual benefits of the natural system are myriad they're deeply embedded they're secure you know, I mean if you put a cow out and you graze her you practice intensive rotational grazing so she gets a new paddock of grass every day she's also manuring a new small area every day she's also moving off of her manure the next day so that any parasites that she may carry at a normal healthy level will not reinfect her to the point of being a pathogenic level of parasite those are durable lasting output benefits from a natural system that we stop noticing and so sometimes we stop counting them and we say, oh my gosh, the lady down the road is getting five gallons out of her jersey and I'm only getting three and a half but we forget she's also bringing in grain all the time and her pastures, which are conventionally grazed by a cow who goes back to the same plant every day and nips off off yesterday's growth until that plant dies and the nasty stuff gets big and she doesn't want to touch it, and then the lady has to, you know, plow and replant her pastures. Our pastures are constantly getting more and more biodiverse, sending down deeper roots, building better soil. Those systems have a resilience and a durability that the other does not have. I can't even remember where that question started.
2: Oh, no, that's quite all right, because it speaks to one of the ideas that I was recently introduced to. I mean, we talk about the idea of externalities very often, but it's looking at the negative impacts of something, such as fracking or things like that. But we don't look at the positive externalities because the actions that we take, like being able to... By shopping at a local store, getting to know the owners, maybe we're able to leave our keys with them for our children to pick up because we have to run somewhere. And that what you're speaking to now talks to those positive returns from doing grass-fed cattle and other animals as opposed to like a confined feedlot operation or less intensively managed rotational grazing, things like that.
1: Right. Sometimes we, we keep telling ourselves one day we're going to sit down and make a, a flow sheet of pros and cons for, you know, like the family cow, the intensively managed family dairy cow, only it would have to have a, a third or a fourth level, you know, not just pros and cons, but we'd have to go down the con list because there would be ways that virtually all of those cons were pros or were generating pros and that those were generating more. So it's this, you know, sort of expanding web that happens when we enter into relationships like what you're talking about.
2: And there's a friend of mine in the permaculture community who feels that based on the evidence that he has available to him, that one of the most beneficial things that we could do for climate change, more than buying a vehicle that uses less gasoline or anything like that, is to move towards grass-fed beef. Because of the combination of what you're speaking to, you know, we have these plants that continually regrow and they send in send down deeper roots, which then captures more carbon, and then the animals themselves are not as concentrated so that their manure is not, you know, being washed off into a pit somewhere, but rather is naturally decomposing and turning back into fertilizer. And just, I wonder the impacts that we could have if more folks were moving towards these kinds of methods, as you've outlined in your book.
1: That's exactly what we meant to say. And, you know, about... Listing pros and cons, and then realizing that all of the all of the disad- or seeming disadvantages were actually just one piece of a thing that, taken as a whole, as an advantage. Even you know, it's, as we're talking about various ways of, of um, reversing negative impacts, even the simple fact that the more people are home working with their land um, turning some of their sunlight into food or fuel there's a satisfaction about doing that that keeps us home more build our relationships with one another we're not out in the car driving somewhere else we are doing business with the local people who may not be as cheap as walmart certainly you know the local businesses in our little village of toronto They're more expensive, but they're there, and they're our neighbors, and they're going to go on being there only if we go on interacting with them, just as the fertility and the life in that part of the planet we happen to be living on is only going to remain and increase in proportion to how much time, not, not labor, not work, but just commitment, we put into being there. Um, certainly, the question of whether or not beef or any, you know, flesh animal e- eating flesh has a negative ecological impact is one that most people only have very partial, very incomplete information on. And I feel tired. When it comes up, just because of the number of times that somebody has caught us, <laughs> you know, in a public place, maybe when we've been speaking and tried to tell us about, you know, how what a bad environmental impact eating animal foods has, I don't even want to go there simply because their their primary assumptions are incomplete. They have some very good primary assumptions about commercial ag, but they have a great big fat zero where it comes to primary assumptions about naturally raised animals. The easiest lesson that somebody could give, I think, on real uh, on the impact of real farming and the fact that it's a positive impact wouldn't even require that we measure atmospheric carbon or or, you know, Um, use a percolator to see how well our soil is getting water in, but would simply require that a person visit repeatedly over a period of time a farm where natural farming is being practiced and just watch the increase, the increase of plant life, the increase of um, running water, the increase of animal life and reproduction, increase of food available, the increase of diversity, And there's something about that increase that is incompatible with the notion that, yes, but really it's spilling over toxins. (laughs) Outside of this little pretty footprint, you're spilling out toxins on everybody else. It's nonsense. You can see that what's actually happening is things are coming in. They're not leaving. Soil's not leaving. Water's not leaving as fast. Oxygen is going out. Heat is coming in and being converted into sugars and starches instead of coming in, soaking into bare soil and then being let off to to warm up the atmosphere. That experience is difficult to put in a few words and hand to somebody, you know, hand to an anti-beef person at a conference, but it's, um, it's a deep experience. It's a learning experience. And I wish more people could have it
2: it creates an invitation to come visit the farm and see what a change this is making. Visit the animals and see what their lives are like and what's happening on the farm, rather than to just pass a blanket judgment based on what we know about concentrated industrial agriculture.
1: Yeah, isn't it funny that as a nation, we're so comfortable with the assumption that food production happens out there somewhere at the hands of people a few that we don't know and you know that that's really where it belongs don't you imagine it seems to me that there's an innate sense of insecurity that isn't any less for being unexamined That goes with having needs um, which are met through forces that we can't see and, and don't have any impact on. You know, I, I I have it every time we get a storm and the electricity goes out, and I think, well, I'm glad I have kerosene, but in the long term, as far as, say, my freezers go, that power better come back on. <laughs> and um, we, have, we have a set of plans in place. If it ever wasn't going to come back on, I know what I'd do about it, but it does create a sense of insecurity. I think, as a nation, especially as a nation with a lot of children in the educational system, we're going to attain a greater sense of security the more people do go visit the local farm, the more people do have an expectation that food comes from some soil somewhere near them and isn't just you know, something that shows up in the grocery store already packaged and, and processed and prepared. You know, you see that sense of insecurity every time a hurricane sets up along the eastern seaboard and everybody hits the grocery store, that suddenly we're in a little bit of a panic. What am I going to eat if things shut down for a week? And I um, I think we'd have that sense a whole lot less if we could even just sort of picture to ourselves, well, you know, the city's surrounded by farms. We'll figure out some way to get some of that food into the town.
2: I could take that and really run with that kind of isolation that we have in being able to just buy what it is that we want from markets that disconnect us from the means of production and from the sources of where these things come from. But I don't know that we would have the time to finish that conversation before you have to meet with your vet. But I really appreciate everywhere that you've taken us today, Beth, and how this has really become a broad conversation about what it means to create a farmstead and to be a farmer. And your literary background really comes through in the way that you share this with us. And I've appreciated everything that we've covered today. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners before we draw this conversation to a close?
1: Usually when we do a podcast, Sean and I are both here. (laughs) And he's a real good, he's a real good baso to my treble. He always makes the point of telling people that being a farmer especially being your own farmer requires a certain amount of uh, what does he call it he calls it abandonment <laughs> that you sort of leap in and trust and start assembling the pieces in one place you know animals and plants And, you know, start seeing what they do together. Pay attention to them. Um, Learn. What do chickens do? They scratch and they recycle and they debug. What do pigs do? They are practically bottomless pits that convert waste nutrients that are either too much or too ripe or too whatever for anybody else on the farm to eat. They convert that into... Into meat and more pigs, and into manured bedding for the garden. You get all the parts together, and work with them, and they start to tell you where they belong. So he's a real—he's—he's very encouraging about learn what you can, but get in there and trust. And I, I generally chime in at the end. To be successful at natural farming, it's really important that you cultivate a belief in the system, a faith in natural systems that is stronger than your doubts so that when you're standing over a dead animal, your belief that the system works is stronger even than your belief in that animal's death. I'm reminded of Daniel Salatin and you know, at eight years old, he said, Daddy, I want rabbits. And they said about developing rabbits that could eat grass and somewhere probably in, in salad bar beef or something Joel Salatin comments that there were a lot of dead rabbits in the beginning and it would have made a lot of people very worried but they had to wait for the genetically fit rabbits to, to survive and reproduce there's some of that that comes into farming you have to believe that cows eat grass and don't need bushels of grain so that when the cow you buy that's probably going to have genetics that were selected for the last you know ten generations to need a certain amount of grain so that as you're working with her and you see that it doesn't work perfectly that you don't say Ah, it's just true cows have to have grain I give up but you keep working toward a natural system and then of course the one thing that we encourage everybody to consider is that dairy animals are like a piece of magic on your property because they're the one animal that takes yesterday's sunlight in the form of leaves and turns it into today today's fats and proteins in large quantities every day on and on and on. So they are they are the you you've struck oil on your property when you embed a dairy animal into a grazing system. You now have an open pipeline of energy. So th- those are things that we always try, try, <laughs> try and pass on to people at workshops. We end with the final words, you can do this, you can do this.
2: Thank you, Beth, for joining me today. And I hope that others will take up this call and learn about how much one cow can revolutionize their lives and their farm.
1: Thank you so much,
0: Scott. It's been delightful. And that was Beth Dowerty of the Salsier Farm, co-author along with her husband, Sean, of The Independent Farmstead. That book is available from Chelsea Green Publishing, and you'll find a link to it in the show notes at thepermaculturepodcast.com. What I really like about this conversation with Beth today is that she and Sean both came from the arts, backgrounds that, though their families provided an opportunity for them to know animals and farming, were still disconnected from the land in some ways, and that they made a conscious choice to return to this lifestyle. They did live in town, and then made the jump to leave that space and become farmers. It feels good to hear about folks who are making these kinds of choices and making it work, that there's this calling that they're devoting themselves to, and that any of us, if this is really where our heart lies, could make the same choice. It's not that we all need to be farmers, but we all do need to make a decision about how we're going to spend our time and energy in this one precious life. What are we going to dedicate ourselves to? Do we feel that it's too late to make a change? Or do we still have all the time left in the world? Though I discovered permaculture before I was even 20, I didn't really pick this up until I was in my 30s. And I've spent all this time working and building and growing my understanding and knowledge as I sit behind a microphone and have conversations with people, and I receive so many messages from folks of all ages who are interested in doing something different, many in their 40s and 50s, and there's still time, there's still opportunity. I keep running across this idea, I think it comes from Malcolm Gladwell, that to become an expert takes 10,000 hours. I don't know if that's really true or not, but even if that is the case, we have enough life, That we could recreate ourselves every decade and become really, truly good at something over and over in our lives if we wish. Just because we have training or degrees in a particular direction doesn't hold us where we are. If we come from the arts, we can farm. If we come from technology, we can tell stories. Wherever you are, whatever it is that you do, what choice would you like to make? What would you like to do with your time? On this precious earth I'd love to hear from you and know what it is that You truly love and want to be doing So get in touch Show at thepermaculturepodcast.com 717-827-6266 Or if you want to drop a Postcard or letter in the mail The Permaculture Podcast P.O. Box 16 Dauphin, Pennsylvania 17018 Until the next time Which will be the second conversation with Sean Chamberlain Spend each day creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.